Hello and welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley. I recently had the opportunity to moderate a live discussion organised by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance with its members Resonance, Zenesis and Mastercard. The Alliance is a network of academia, non-profits, tech, biotech and other companies all based in the Bay Area and all committed to improving the health of everyone around the world. To learn more, visit their website at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Now, the discussion is about leveraging technology to scale outcomes in global health. I hope you find it interesting and informative. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Today, we are looking at the role of data in global health, leveraging technology to scale global health outcomes. And the first order of business is for me to introduce our co-hosts. And I'll start with uh, Marissa Gilman. Over to you, Marissa. Hey, everyone. Welcome. My name is Marissa Gilman. I lead the global health practice at Resonance. Um, and Resonance is a consulting firm that tackles challenges across the intersection of public and private sectors. We're delighted to partner with the Shop in the Arm podcast and the Bay Area Global Health Alliance on this important conversation, part of the Inclusive Innovation Exchange. This is our ninth episode in a series that unpacks cross-sector global health innovations that are human-centered, local-first, and rooted in partnership. This conversation with Zenesis, CC Hub, and MasterCard will explore those tenants in the context of data and digital health infrastructure, as Ben had mentioned. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Marissa. And at this point, I'm going to speak on behalf of uh, the Bay Area Global Health Alliance's Sterling Executive Director, uh, Sarah Anderson, who can't be with us in person this morning. But really just to let you know that the Alliance is a network of academics, private sector, tech and biotech, nonprofits and community organizations, all committed to improving the health and wellness of people around the world and all based in the Bay Area. Well, we're really delighted to collaborate with Resonance on this webinar, and that's basically our role, to collaborate with members of dis and disseminate and partner with them to share news and important expertise that can be of use to improving global health. So let's get right into it, shall we? Let me introduce our guests. Um, I'm going to say a few words about them in alphabetical order and then ask them to say a bit more about themselves. Our first guest is Temi Filani. She is a public health professional um, and currently leads the Design for Health Practice with Co-Creation Hub, CC Hub, where she's responsible uh, for strategic planning, uh, thought leadership, partnerships and business developments with the goal of spurring design, innovation and the use of technology in the healthcare space across Africa. Temi, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Hello, everyone. And thank you for the warm introduction. Like you said, CHUB is a pan-African organization and we're really looking to spur innovation across different sectors. And one of them is the healthcare space. Um, I'm a medical doctor primarily, turned public health expert, and now a digital health enthusiast. Um, so I'm really looking forward to contributing to this conversation and having a good time. Thank you. Great. Hey, and uh, uh, Femi, where are you based? Oh, very valid. I'm based in Nigeria. Um, I'm in a state called Ikiti right now um, in Nigeria. Well, thank you for joining us from Nigeria. 
Um, our next guest is Paul Musser, who leads MasterCard's global pharmaceutical and medtech vertical. Using innovative business models and MasterCard's extensive technology resources, he and his teams look for way to further enable life-improving potential of medicine. Paul, how are you this morning? I'm great, Ben. Thanks so much. I appreciate the introduction, and, and Marissa and Ben, thanks for the invitation to participate. Looking forward to the conversation. So, MasterCard and healthcare, what's going on? Yeah, so we've actually been in the healthcare space for many, many years. Obviously, we do payments, and we help uh, both providers, insurers, and the pharmaceutical industry move money. And like I oftentimes say, we have a lot of ingredients on the shelf that we've mixed in a particular recipe. And so now we're going back to our pharmaceutical partners and saying, what more can we do with those uh, ingredients to make you successful? And th that's the conversation we're having. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the panel this morning. Thank you. Um, and last and by no means least, it's Clay Slater. Clay Seder, who is the Chief Operating Officer and former Director of Product at Zenesis Technologies. Clay was the first company hire, and he's developed product strategy, shaped embedded delivery models, and launched products in Ethiopia, Zambia, South Africa, Togo, and Liberia. Clay, welcome, welcome to the webinar. How are you doing this fine morning? Doing great. Thank you very much for having us. We love uh, anything with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, and we're super happy to be a part of the convo. Can you tell us a bit about what Zenesis does? Yeah, so Zenesis is a data interoperability company. We build technology that helps to be the system between systems for digital health uh, data, but also sort of uh, other sectors like economic recovery, disaster preparedness, so we think a lot about digital infrastructure as a topic. Uh, how do we connect systems? How do we use data better? And I'm happy to talk about all of that and also the, the sort of bigger definition of, of digital infrastructure as we think about it. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Um, we did some preparation before the webinar and thought there were a few general questions it might be helpful for us all to reflect and, uh, and discuss. And then we'll open it up to the floor. Um, if you do have any questions, there's a Q&A function here in the Zoom webinar. Feel free to uh, put your question there and uh, we'll do our utmost to make sure it's answered. But the first question, and, and uh, Temi, maybe I could start with you here. You're all committed to improving digital infrastructure as it relates to digital health. But what does the term digital infrastructure actually mean and why is it so important to emerging markets? Thank you so much. Um, so digital infrastructure often refers to you know, the foundation or the building blocks that, should, that are required for technology to operate optimally. Um, it could look like internet access, you know, devices, cloud services, etc. Um, how I like to describe it is using the SPO model. So thinking about the structure, process and outcome. And in this instance, the digital infrastructure is what I'll consider the structures. So you require certain things, certain inputs to be in place for processes to function optimally for you to get the required outcome. 
So the digital infrastructure is what I'll consider as the input or the structural um, elements of an, an entire process. So imagine a scenario, say, for example, you're trying to improve vaccine uptake in an environment and you have all the fantastic solutions and ideas, but you do not have the vaccines in itself. Um, how would you actually get the outcome you want, which is improved, improved vaccine coverage without the actual vaccine? So in this instance, digital infrastructure is that. It is the, you know, the inputs that are required for tech to thrive. Um, within a space. And if you think about it, with the pandemic and also the surge and adoption of um, technology across the board, there is a need for us to invest in digital infrastructure. There's abundance evidence that shows that technology can enable healthcare and improve health outcomes. So definitely we, there's, you know, this is a, a very important conversation, thinking about what we need to do to ensure that the building blocks, the foundation for technology to function optimally are available, particularly in, you know, climes like Sub-Saharan Africa and other emerging markets. So I hope you will excuse, um, Tammy, this stupid question. Are we, are we talking about the sort of the hardcore infrastructure, the fiber optics, um, the, the wireless stations, the connections with satellites, or are we talking about more software-oriented services that um, Africa, going through this, this renaissance and this leapfrogging from um, uh, analog to digital use of technology, uh, is it that, or is it a mixture of the things? It's a mix of both, actually, um, and particularly in places where this is completely novel, you definitely have to make account for both the hard and you know, the softer things to ensure that that platform is available. So, yeah, it, I'll say it's a mix of both hard and soft. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Clay, can I come to you? Um, it's obvious, isn't it? We know this from the global north uh, and from many middle-income countries that good data does improve good outcomes. Um, we've seen it in the Global Fund. We see it in national health services um, in developed countries. But but how does good data improve health outcomes in countries where perhaps there is less of an investment in health infrastructure? How does all of that work? It's a good question. I, I would maybe challenge uh, the notion that it's obvious that good data results in good outcomes in the global north. Um, because I think that, you know, one of the things that COVID, I think, humbled the, the high-income countries in some ways, uh, because we discovered that really we all share very similar challenges. Um, we have data, but now what? What do you do with the data? How do you make it so that data becomes outcomes at the end of the day? Because at the end of the day, what we want is, you know, more children vaccinated, healthier families, um, and connecting having data to those outcomes. I think that's where the, this concept of infrastructure comes in. Um, and we learned in, in the Global North that uh, we have big challenges with this. I think COVID taught us that. Um, but when we think about infrastructure, you know, we have a lot of data, but how do we turn that data into action? We have to think about, you know, oftentimes the most interesting uh, insights that we can derive out of data come from a combination of data systems together. So how do you connect data systems together? 
beyond the technology, what are the human systems that are in place to actually make good decisions? And how are the governments uh, uh, encouraging this through laws and policy? Um, all of these things relate to each other. Without the human systems in place to make good decisions, without the legal systems in place to encourage data sharing and collaboration, then you can't really get anywhere with the data. And, and if all you have is data but no decisions at the end of the day, what have you done? Um, that's kind of the worst of all possible outcomes because presumably you've invested a lot of money in the data, but then if you're not actually creating outcomes and positive impact with it, um, then, then what have we done? Yeah. So I think that the, the infrastructure is really how you connect, you know, that first step of getting the data to actually creating outcomes at the end of the day. Well, we'll certainly come back to uh, what goes into the special source to to get outcomes, good outcomes utilized. But Paul, we touched on this a little bit at the start. Why is good health data important to MasterCard? And I suppose, what is it that your team brings to the table to help implementers and policymakers, particularly in this COVID age? Yeah, so I think there's two sides of it. One is, um, as a multinational corporation, we have long recognized that the viability of our business is dependent upon the success of the communities in which we live and operate, right? And, and fundamental to those communities thriving, in, inclusively growing is the way we put it, is having good healthcare systems and good healthcare access. So for us, it's not just a matter of can we move uh, pieces of data, it's our role in the communities in which we live and operate. So that's, that's one side of it. The other side of it, and, and I think Clay brings up a really valid point here, which is even as a technology service provider, we are a technology company. It's, and my, my friends don't like when I say this, but it's true. The technology is usually the easiest portion of the conversation, right? It's much more difficult and, frankly, much more important to, to start with the, the nurse in the local community and see how she's actually collecting the data to begin with that then gets put into the system, that then gets aggregated for the Ministry of Health to figure out where that vaccination program should be run. And if you start at the technology, you are off base to begin with the conversation needs to start with that nurse who really knows her community and knows why the process is being done the way it is. I'll give you a real quick example, Ben. We have been working with Gavi and the, and the Global Fund on a very specific challenge they have because vaccination, just as Kemi mentions, is not an, a, a simple problem. It takes infrastructure and all kinds of things to make it work. One of the fundamental questions, especially, in, for example, in childhood vaccinations, is Many countries don't have a good registry of children, and so therefore they don't know what percentage of their children they've actually vaccinated. And in more than one case, Gavi's come to us and say, we're getting reporting of 125% vaccination rates. Okay, th that's the problem, right? That's, that's a paperwork problem that we should step back and start with the nurse and see why does that infrastructure, the rules she's following, the programs that she's implementing come up with 125 because that means there's somebody who really isn't getting vaccinated and somebody who's being double counted. 
Yeah, or they don't know how many children there are, which is another problem. Exactly. Too. You're absolutely right, Clay, right? You have to start with how many children do I have, right? So if we if we go up to the 38,000-foot level for a moment, um, you've all been uh, heavily involved professionally in the world's emergency response to COVID, and it's touched all of our lives. Uh, all of us have had to change fundamentally the way that we live. Um, how would you rate the world's response? And in particular, I'm thinking of vaccine uh, commodity, PPE, uh, ventilator distribution to people in the global south. How, how much of a good job have we done in securing that, that mantra that nobody is safe until everybody is safe? And, and, and Temi, I'm sorry to put you on the spot again, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that first. Absolutely. Um, and this is a very critical conversation. I think, um, as you can imagine, there are several uh, answers or several ways to approach this. It's a very subjective question. Um, and maybe I will um, look at it from the lens of Nigeria um, and say that certain things have happened and certain things have been done that I think went absolutely well in terms of the approach to addressing um, the pandemic and the challenges. Um, so things around raising awareness, communication, I think, you know, there were some areas where we did really well um, putting up some protocols in place, things like that. I think we did relatively well with that. Um, were there opportunities for us to improve further? I think so. Um, were there opportunities for us to further leverage technology? I think so. Um, if we had the opportunity, if we had previously um, invested in, you know, digital infrastructure prior to the pandemic, could we have gotten better responses? Absolutely. Um, so th that's, you know, there's a huge learning from there. In terms of vaccination, <laughs> um, I think Nigeria is currently at about one or two percent. Mm. coverage rate so we're still far cry from where we need to be and there's still so many conversations around you know, the kind of vaccines we're getting and i'm sure if you're you know familiar with what's going on in the news you hear a lot of conversations as well around you know the different types of vaccinations and which ones are most effective etc there's that conversation as well but yes um in terms of the response rate i think it's varied across the different you know pillars or elements of disease surveillance and management of outbreaks. Um, and there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think definitely, definitely technology can help us, you know, push further. Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Temi is um, not only spot on, but she's very diplomatic, right? I, I, think, I think the answer is we have not done nearly as well as we should have or what we could have. There are lots of spaces where we should be celebrating success. So, you know, let's stay with Africa and the African Union and the African CDC has made significant strides. We forget sometimes that the African CDC has not been around for decades and decades. So they've walked in and they've picked up with just a few years uh, under the belt, Dr. John and the folks there have done incredible work. But the fact is, you can only do so much if you don't have vaccines on the tarmac ready to be delivered. That's one side of it. And then as, as our own foundation, the Mascar Foundation has pointed out with the recent uh, grant to Africa CDC, is that a lot of it is, okay, once it's on the ground, once you have vaccines, 
you have to have staff and people in the right place with the right message to get the dose in the arm. And, and we all have had that challenge. As much as Clay pointed out on the data side, frankly, we had that problem in the United States with communities that have been separated from access, and, and there should be no reason for that to happen. So there are glimmers of hope, there are successes, and we should celebrate those, but there is no doubt that we have a lot of work to do. And when we talk about digital health infrastructure, whether that's data or um, tracking and proof and provenance, there's work to be done. And, and Paul, just a moment, I think, to thank the MasterCard Foundation for a pretty extraordinary donation, the like that we haven't really seen from the uh, uh, corporate community to support vaccine rollout and uh, COVID care across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So I, I know I speak for many in the public health community here in the Bay Area when we express deep gratitude for that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would like to take credit for it, but it's the the brainchild and the great work of the foundation, and we're extraordinarily proud of their decision to make the donations. Well, please do pass it on. But Clay, um, this sort of comes back to what you were saying at the first, uh, uh, the fir at the opening of the session, and um, that you know, don't assume that the global north has got it completely right, um, and. Uh, here we are, the United States. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm originally from the United Kingdom, the world's best national health service, free delivery on the point of service, virtually collapsed under the weight of COVID. Um, and you could see it all across countries with major health investments. What did we get wrong? And um, what do we have to do using technology? to really deliver on this commitment to global solidarity? Yeah, it's a great question. I got my sort of first foray into global public health back during the Ebola crisis um, in Africa. And back then we were kind of saying the same things. I mean, one of the things that we learned as a global community during that crisis was that we were unprepared for, for what was happening and you know, told ourselves we need to do better. We need to <clears throat> make investments. We need to get prepared. And then, you know, COVID came and we still found ourselves sort of caught on our back foot. So I think going forward, we really need to take this infrastructure conversation seriously. I think that there's a bit of a, a tragedy of the commons problem when it comes to digital infrastructure. And everybody does maybe a little bit of an investment in their vertical, um, you know, all of these siloed uh, siloed programs maybe contribute a little bit to it, but unless we have really focused investments and we take this from a systems design perspective, you know, um, Paul brought up this concept of user-centered design is really important. System design is also really important. We need focused investments on the system itself uh, and not just trying to address the system in the periphery of other programs. I think without that, we're not going to put into place the kind of um, technical infrastructure that we need to be prepared for the next time, um, or or the human systems. You know, again, it's like like Paul said. Oftentimes, the zeros and the ones; those are the easiest things to do. The actual the changing the humans can be quite a bit more difficult, um, and getting those decision making systems in place is is equally important to the data itself. 
And one other really important stakeholder, if you like, in improving access to care through better use of digital technologies is the power of politicians and policymakers. Um, and I, you know, these kind of investments can be long. Uh, as Temi said at the start, they might not be so noticeable to electorates or to policymakers desperate to show that uh, a, an emergency government uh, commitment is, is providing results. So, so how do you help policymakers make better decisions to incorporate digital healthcare. And, and again, uh, play if I could start with you on that. Yeah. So I think um, a part of it is this focused investment and really paying attention to what are the systems that you have in place to encourage good decision making. So part of this is the technical systems, but really making investments in the organizations themselves saying, are, is everybody in this organization prepared to make a decision? A part of what we do, too, is trying to think from a systems design perspective, who are the decision makers and who should be the decision makers? Um, you know, um, I, I think, as uh, Paul mentioned, oftentimes the people who could be making the best decisions on digital health data are not empowered at all to be making those decisions. So oftentimes the people who bear the brunt of digitization Digitalization are the nurses, community health workers, the ones who have to collect the digital data, but they very rarely get that data back. It very rarely comes back around to them to be able to say, all right, now I can actually use this data to improve health outcomes. Um, so thinking about uh, the system as a whole, who are the decision makers, and then investing in both the technical systems and the training capacity building that's necessary in order for people to make regular decisions on the data, all of those things I think are, are really uh, sort of intricately linked if, if we wanna create good outcomes at the end of the day. Thank you, Paul. I, I, I look quite enviously at the success of fintech in um, emerging economies around the world, not really just restricted to sub-Saharan Africa, but Southeast Asia as well. And are there lessons to be learned there in ways that we can um, enthuse and engage policymakers? Oh, I, I think so entirely. Um, you know, as a, a, a reformed banker, I understand well the, the importance of having rules, regulations, and practices and policies, not just at, at the financial institution, but at a community, at a regulated re level. And, um, you know, it's my perspective, and going back to something that Temi mentioned early on, which is the soft infrastructure, is both the individuals who use the tools at the, at the end of the line, but it's also all those policies and regulations that create an environment that say, here are the parameters that we want you to follow. Now go forth and be innovative, right? So it's wonderful to say, go forth and be innovative and hand somebody a whiteboard with no markings, no restrictions, and then you may have mayhem. And when we're talking about things like financial services, which is where I started, but in healthcare today, data, for example, privacy, confidentiality, and the appropriate use of that data, those should be set by policymakers. Those should be set by regulators, and they should be vehemently enforced 
so that the innovation that comes forward from organizations like the stuff that Temi's doing know the playing field that they're competing on, knowing the playing field that they're operating on. And they don't have to worry about, can I use the data this way or that way? They know the principle, they know what they're going forward, and they can focus on creating an incredible experience and know that everyone else has to follow the same practices. Those, that soft infrastructure, we can tell you firsthand from the FinTech world, that is the starting point. And to your point, Ben, Oftentimes it feels like it's slow, it's methodical, it's maddeningly difficult to get done, but w with its completion, that's where you get innovation taking off. Yeah, and, and, and I've often found, uh, and, and this is experience, I think from the HIV fields during the fallow periods of the, of the 2010s that you might have some commitment to long-term investment, but what was missing was the stories, the examples of good practice, the examples of how you've made a difference. And, and Temi, I wondered if I could come back to you and, and ask you, what do you get really excited about? Is there one <clears throat> example through CC Hub that you've come across that, you know, Ben, this is just tremendous. This is really what the world needs. Yes, um, I think I, I would have to echo a lot of what um, Paul and Kay have been discussing, um, talking about how, you know, Kay said earlier, you have data, but then you're not turning that into action. Then what's the point? It's the same way with, you know, with digital health, thinking about coming up with beautiful solutions. Um, if you're not linking it directly to health outcomes and to individual saving lives, you know, how is this infrastructure, how is this technology translating to lives saved? You know, that should be a conversation that should happen from the start. And I think for that, you know, for us to achieve that, it's important for us to maybe expand a bit the definition of who we call policymakers. Perhaps we need to make room for other people, you know, the subject matter experts, the end users, you know, the those who uh, would benefit from this and have them be a part of the conversation from the onset and you know a lot of conversations have been going on all touched on it's about having me being you know design centered and making sure that we're capturing their inputs their pain points as we go on and that's something that we you know sort of focus on at cc hub our name you know is co-creation hub um so i think i'll just give one example of one solution we co-developed a while ago, about two years ago. So what we had done was we conducted a trial um, with TB patients. So if you know about tuberculosis, this is one of the leading drivers of mortality across the world and in sub-Saharan Africa as well. Um, so we're thinking to improve health outcomes with TB patients leveraging technology. So even though you know, it was centered around use of technology, we had to ensure that it was a health Outcome, a measurable health outcome attached to that um, solution. So what we did was we sat with TB patients to understand why they're not adhering to the use of TB drugs, which was one of the key drivers of the poor outcomes we're seeing with TB. Um, and one of the key things they said was, um, there's this thing called DOPS therapy, direct observed therapy, where patients have to present to the hospitals and show the care providers that they're taking their medications so almost daily. That didn't seem very efficient, but it was you know, it's a standard practice. 
So we thought of a way to digitize that process such that, you know, it's still centered around patient satisfaction, patient experience, but also still giving us the desired results, which is adherence to TB treatment. Um, we worked with a research institute. We worked with a telco and, you know, we saw tremendous results by just pivoting from, you know, more manual to digital solutions to improve adherence to TB medications. Um, there are several other examples at CC Hub, um, but of course, this is not <laughs> the platform for that. But yeah, there's so many opportunities where um, you prioritize the patient outcome while still leveraging tech, still pushing your agenda, but ensuring that there's, there's, there's a lot of attention towards what exactly is this going to translate to as um, benefits for the patients or end users. Now, there's a there's a, a dark side, as it were, to uh, the scaling up of digital technology for healthcare. And how do I put this? I'm part of a collective working in Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia to improve access to HIV, TB, and hepatitis care. And this all comes about because the Global Fund Against AIDS, TB, and Malaria is withdrawing its funding from the free countries. And one of the biggest challenges that people face is the fear that their data records will go into government systems. And there is a fear about protecting the confidentiality and the privacy of, of that data, particularly, oddly enough, well, not oddly enough, as it relates to HIV, but equally, um, equally TB. And um, you know, so there are, it's not as if there is a clean slate for people to say, yes, have my data, why don't you? And let's put it into uh, whatever national authority database works. And I wondered <clears throat> what the three of you, how you've thought about that and how you've countered that. And Paul, maybe I could start with you. And are there lessons, again, from the financial services industry that could be helpful here? Yeah, I, I do believe that fundamental of the success of not just any digital health, but any health program is the confidentiality between myself and my healthcare provider. Right? and the ability to have a transparent conversation that leads to my better health, leveraging her expertise. Obviously, there's a journaling process of that, and whether it's electronic medical records or whether that's a digital insurance policy or whatever that may be. But that first assumption has to be confidentiality between me and my provider. And so... We know that from a fintech space that, you know, a government is not, a, should not, and good governments do not simply say, hey, I, I want to know what's in your bank account. They mm. have to justify having that level of detail, right? That, that is my intimate knowledge, and I've entered into an agreement that that financial institution is going to protect my, my history. The same expectation should be if a doctor's office starts using electronic medical records and they're transporting that, sharing it, aggregating it, there should be a set of expectations around my personal confidentiality and privacy because that becomes the lever of the 
and the motivator of the conversation. There is nothing, we can say this unequivocally from financial services, there is nothing that is going to kill a really great initiative more quickly than having a data collapse or data release, right? Everyone will flee that environment, no matter how user-centric design work and everything else. And so if healthcare is our objective, as Kemi says, if we want to achieve those outcomes, you have to start with an understanding that there's confidentiality between me and my doctor. And in certain settings, in certain countries, we know we can't always rely on that. And as Clay said at the start, that's not necessarily restricted to, uh, to emerging economies. No, it's not. You're absolutely right. But Clay, um, how do you see ways around this problem? Um, yeah, I think that it's obvious that the current systems that we have in place are not sufficient to uh, really protect the, the privacy uh, in the ways that, uh, need, that it needs to be protected. I mean, we see uh, not, not only uh, in, in the markets that we work, but everywhere that unsecured systems are everywhere. You know, Excel is being used as a data repository for sensitive information all over the world. Um, it's being sent through email. You know, um, the first and most important thing that we can do uh, as a technology company is build technology that helps secure the data, helps ensure that when people share data through our technology, that they know that it's being shared at the right levels of aggregation with the right people, that it's being used in the right way, that it's auditable, that you know who's accessing it, all of those kinds of things. I think so. In, in some ways, technology can help us to sort of create more ease and comfort with how data is being used, create more auditability in terms of, of who's using it. Um, and then there's the other uh, non-technology things like the laws that are in place. Um, in many of the markets that we work, there just simply aren't laws that yeah. are there that create the kinds of protections that are necessary. So it's on us to create the data sharing agreements to make sure that things are being integrated in the right way, that they're being shared in the right way. Um, you know, it's uh, I think personally, we haven't sort of spoken about uh, the innovation in digital infrastructure going forward, but I think one of the absolute most important innovations over the next few years will be um, getting to a place where we can create these data sharing agreements in a much faster way than the nine months that it currently takes to get a data sharing agreement in place, um, having the technology in place so that there's clear assurances about the security and the privacy of data, if we can solve that challenge and we can get to a place where there's better infrastructure in place for uh, uh, public and private and within government agencies to share their data in a better way, that in and of itself will increase the pace of innovation by a huge, huge, huge amount. So Clay, I'll stick with you if I may for a moment, because we've had a question that comes in that I think perhaps speaks a little bit to what you're talking about. And it's OS versus proprietary data systems. As you develop services, let's say for sub-Saharan African ministries of health to manage data, What's your preference? Uh, an open source Linux style based system that is 
essentially cheap as chips to manage and run, but there might be some questions over security, or a more detailed, complex, read for that expensive private sector solution that is uh, patented and with um, some limitations on accessibility. Where do we strike the balance? Yeah, well, I think that there's a pretty common misconception that open source is cheaper at the end of the day, because oftentimes it's equally as expensive to develop and and maintain an open source system. I think the benefit of open source is in the transparency and the long-term sustainability of those systems. We open sourced our software for that reason. Um, And so, you know, I believe that there's uh, definitely a place for both. In this, uh, sustainability at the end of the day can be approached from a lot of perspectives. Financial sustainability, you can afford to maintain a private system. In the long term, that, that seems sustainable. Um, but, you know, every every geography has their own definitions of sustainability of, of what's required for them. Um, so I think that there's, you know, there's a very clear um, place for both. Um, and we've seen great successes with both. I mean, there are, there are great open source systems right now that are being deployed um, and and also really good um, private mm. solutions as well. So uh, we have a question coming in for, for, for all three of you. Um, yes, I'm not quite sure how to... Uh, how to put this. I'm going to ask the three of you, but uh, um, Paul, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, thanks. Uh, Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, The question is, how do we make digital infrastructure sexy? That is to say, on one level, it's about making the trains running on time, but how do we make and build and generate enthusiasm for partners to invest in this and think it's worthwhile? I'm sorry, Ben. Are you telling me that infrastructure isn't sexy? (laughs) All this time, I've been using it as a pickup line at bars since I was a child, and you're telling me it doesn't work? How did it work for you? No, it doesn't. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, the, The truth of the matter is, like regulatory work, infrastructure needs to be done Infrastructure, both technical, hard, soft, all those things need to be done. And what we find in our conversations, because essentially MasterCard is an infrastructure company, right? So Mm. folks innovate on top of our assets. Um, And what we say to folks all the time is we revel in your success, right? So Folks like myself get really excited to have conversations with folks like Temi or Clay or any number of folks who are doing really creative work, and we get to point to one small portion where we help accelerate or enable that, right? And we recognize that the same way that there are folks who want to do a startup and want to create a startup and like the idea of working in a garage with three of their best friends, there are others who like to come in and say, you know what? I'm running a global network that has, you know, six, nine reliability. And I have thought through every minutia to make that possible, right? There are different capabilities, different things that excite people. And for folks like myself, we like the idea that our job is to enable other people to be innovative um, and to let them shine sometimes while we sit in the background. That's okay. We're excited by it. 
Uh, Temi, I won't put the question in quite the same way to you, but um, uh, let's say we're tw- it's 2030 and um, we've, we've met all the um, uh, development goals set by the UN. What is the experience like for a person with TB going to a clinic um, with a functional data system and a f- functionally trained and capable staff and support system? Wow. Um, I don't know if we've actually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even visualized that realistically. Um, but I imagine that getting to that point wouldn't be a walk in the park for sure. Um, and I imagine also that several people across the entire value chain, different groups would have contributed significantly to this. Um, so think about the patients as the user, they're the ones you know, who create the demand for the service. What would have gone into that? Um, I think a big um, components would have, would be patient literacy, so empowering patients to understand what their rights are, what's important to me. So when I am at the service provider, I know exactly what you know good quality of care is, and I can you know, demand that and hold them accountable for that. As a service provider as well, I have been empowered, given the tools, digital infrastructure, you know, provided with the processes required to also deliver optimally, and also from the governing perspective, thinking about you know regulation and those things are in place so we understand how to monitor and also track performance ensuring that our investments are translating to health out- improved health outcomes so i imagine that across those three different um, buckets or groups there would have been a lot of work um, and building on those different levers for us to get to that point where you know Things are working almost seamlessly and we're inching closer to our goals. So it would have to cut across those three different groups. So the you know, the policymakers, those who are, you know, governing agencies, those who are at the front lines who are actually doing the work, and those who are demanding the services, um, the patients who are using the services, how have we built over time? But it would be interesting to see. Because <laughs> even like you said earlier, in the light of the pandemic, the health systems that we thought were top-notch and you know doing really well. We saw some cracks in the systems despite um, all the investments. So really, I think it's a long way to go, but hopefully we'll get there at some point. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm with you. Um, Clay, there's a question that's come in for you, and it's a lovely one. You mentioned that digital infrastructure can be a tragedy of the commons where no one entity is responsible for its ownership or improvement. How do we address that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that uh, the first and most important thing that we can do is start to treat infrastructure as something worth investing in directly rather than investing in it uh, sort of in a secondhand way through other projects. So, you know, one of the benefits in uh, public health is the concentration of where the money comes from. And so we actually do have strong levers to be able to change the way that we think about this. You know, um, in many uh, traditional senses, we think about this as health system strengthening is the sort of category which digital infrastructure might fall into. But, um, you know, thinking about health system strengthening strengthening in a more first-class way, um, having focused investments in it rather than peripheral investments through other program areas, I think is going to be really, really important. 
um, really we have to start with how is where's the money coming from for this because we can't do anything without the funding for it. Um, and are we asking for the right things? So not only are we spending our money in the right way, but are we asking for the right things? Um, so I think that there's some amount of you know reform that probably needs to happen uh, at the sort of global donor level and the government level about how we think about this um, and where we invest our money. I, I think of reform at the donor level, and I, I think of the uh, the Arctic and those icebergs moving exceptionally slowly. But, uh, you know, maybe that's one thing that uh, climate change will, will affect for us. But look, we have a question from a friend of Bay Area a Global Health Alliance and friend of A Shot in the Arm podcast, Catherine Cheney from DevEx. And Catherine asks... What is one example of a low-income country where investment in digital infrastructure made all the difference in the COVID-19 response? And what are the transferable lessons from their approach? Um, who wants to take that first? Um, Paul, do you want to go? Thanks, Ben. <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, with all due respect, I don't think there was any country where digital tools made all the difference, right? Um, in part because digital tools are just part of the equation. Um, I mean, you could argue that, for example, Vietnam has done a spectacular job uh, around the work that they've done. Thailand has done really great work. Um, Albania has done great work. Bosnia. There's a variety of countries around the world that have probably less a factor of their digital tools and more a factor of their general health infrastructure and the decision around policymakers and regulators. One area where I would actually raise it up and, and not talk about an individual country, but maybe let's use the African continent as an example. I give a lot of credit to the African Union who very early on recognized that Sadly enough, this was going to be a race to who could buy the vaccinations the quickest. And by creating under Strive's guidance, the African medical supply platform, they were able to aggregate, using digital tools, aggregate the buying capability of various countries, and then go to the pharmaceutical companies and say, yes, COVAX is great. We really want to leverage COVAX but we ourselves are going to augment COVAX with our own purchasing capabilities. And rather than 50 plus countries coming at you individually, we're gonna use digital tools and digital platforms to aggregate that. That work by the African Union and guided by the insights of the uh, African CDC really is a best case example of how a continent can respond together by still allowing individual countries and the nuances but saying, we're in this together, right? And in many ways, they've demonstrated what we should have all been doing to begin with. So I use that as an example. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, Joseph Dalmolin <clears throat> asks a question, and uh, Temi, maybe I could put this to you. Uh, Joseph asks, what are, the, what are the thoughts on sustainable business models for digital health in low- and middle-income countries? Historically, sustainably and leveraged investments have been elusive, leading to fragmentation, silos, and suboptimal impact. Um, 
But what excites you? What are coming models that you think can address these? Yeah, um, I think that's an age-long problem, and you're right, Joseph. Um, this is something that, you know, we're yet to find the silver bullet. There have been several, ideas, several ideas around how best to approach it, and I think we've had conversations around, you know, identifying the right people, um, understanding what is important to them. So if you look at the entire um, spectrum of those who are key players within the space, you would know that they fall across the different um, sections in the curve of adoption of technology, right? So there are people who will be laggards, there are people who will be early adopters. So I think one of the key things to do is probably to understand where the relevant players fall across the entire curve. Um, another thing that I think we should bring into the conversation is really value proposition. So like it or not, um, it's always helpful to come with, you know, what's it for you or for me or for us or for them, just thinking about how to present that to ensure that they see the value that this is bringing and see if it aligns with their own interests or desires. Um, and I think maybe one final ingredient is to really think around sustainability, which you also touched on. So making that a priority as well, it's not enough for us as tech institutions or you know, private sector to just come with ideas and implement. You know, often projects maybe have lifespans, and we put in all the effort within the you know the project lifespan, and um, there's really no plan per se on how to handle. So I like what Clay said about you know building that sustainability you know from the from inception, where you're thinking about your platform and thinking okay, maybe if it's open source, it's more likely to be sustained and better utilized. So thinking about it, I think from the point of developing and designing the, the, the you know, the projects or the processes, these are some things that I think, you know, might help to drive that conversation. So understanding where they fall, are they laggards, are they early adopters, are they, you know, late majority or early majority, understanding that and knowing how to play to that, having a strong value proposition, I would say, what's in it for everybody. Um, and also thinking about sustainability from the start. Maybe if we have these three themes in the pot or these three ingredients in the pot, perhaps it would interest closer to, you know, more sustainable solutions in the healthcare space. And, and then one final question, coming back, Clay, to you about and what a wonderful phrase, the tragedy of the commons. Can you give us an example of where a country has avoided that and taken uh, strategies to uh, um, c celebrate the, um, the full popular engagement, for want of a better phrase? No, <laughs> I can't easily give you an example, although I do think that there's a lot of encouraging, um, a, a lot of encouraging trends uh, in this direction. I think that, you know, to Temi's point, uh, including uh, as many uh, partnerships as you can in, in the long term will help to create sustainability as well. Um, I think really getting everybody who can participate uh, and benefit from digital infrastructure to participate in the system is really, really, really important. I think the work that MasterCard is doing is really important with this and this concept of, um, I think Paul brought up in a previous conversation, pre-competitive collaboration, this concept of bringing in uh, private sector actors uh, in particular to collaborate before they you know, start to compete on their products 
with the understanding that, you know, making investments in this area, in digital infrastructure, in the, these economies will increase the economy. That makes more people will more people will have more money to buy more of our products. That's like a rising tide lifts all boat kinds of thing. Um, so I don't see any place where this is being done super, super well right now. I think that there's a huge amount of innovation that needs to happen um, in the in the space of public private engagement um, and in the technology and human systems that go around it uh, in order to, to get this done right. It's, it's very, very important that we get this uh, done right, uh, you know, and, and in a much faster timeline than it's been happening. Um, we saw huge program slippages over the last year with COVID in pretty much every priority disease area. Um, now is the time to really invest in these partnerships because even small incremental improvements that we can make to the system right now are going to have multiplicative, you know, compounding returns on investment over the next decade. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We're trying to be as upbeat as possible, but we can't escape the fact that, you know, the development field has set itself back about 10 years at a minimum coming out of COVID-19. And it's going to require an extraordinary commitment and challenge uh, in ways that we haven't really seen before. And in many ways, that's why webinars, webinars like this are so helpful. I, I see in the comment in the chat that we have a note from uh, Emmanuel Obasui from uh, Nigeria, who's looking for networking opportunities. Uh, he uh, is uh, a builder of a digital platform and they're a Mass Challenge 2021 finalist. You can see him in there with his LinkedIn page. Anyone want to connect with him? I'm sure he'd be really deeply appreciated for that. Marissa, can I hand over to you to make some closing remarks from this really wonderful session? Yes, thank you so much, Ben, for facilitating such an interesting conversation. And thank you so much to Paul, Clay, and Temi for sharing your thoughts on the power of data and the importance of digital infrastructure in promoting digital health and ultimately health access. And, so, and thank you so much to our audience. We're so excited that you joined us for this special episode of the Inclusive Innovation Exchange that we've done in partnership with Ben Plumley from A Shot in the Arm podcast and with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Um, if you're interested in checking out past conversations on the Inclusive Innovation Exchange, you can visit our website at resonanceglobal.com and feel free to reach out if this spurred any questions or areas that you'd like to explore collaboration in. We're always looking to, to help solve these challenges with other partners. So thank you. Thank you, Marissa. This was a recording, a live recording of a webinar organized by Resonance and the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, levering technology to scale outcomes in global health. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to facilitate this. I know our listeners and viewers will find this fascinating. So a thank you to our partners, a thank you to the participants, and a thank you to you for watching and listening. As always, you can find us at Twitter and Facebook and YouTube at Shot Harm Podcast. You know what to do. Give us five stars and subscribe. And with that, everyone, have a safe week and a great week.